Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. Have you ever been in the process of trying to buy a product or service, or maybe you're interacting with a particular brand, and at the time you think to yourself, why? Why does it have to be this difficult? Well, when we experience difficulty like that in a customer experience, apparently that's called friction. You know, we don't always seem to think of it as friction, and I would say that it's more around difficulty, difficulty in getting things done. But the heart of the question that happens when we experience friction is the question, why? Why do you need that much information from me in order for me to buy this product? Why? Why do I have to click through six different screens just to find the product that I want? Why? Why do you tell me that I need to wait at home from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. when you know you're not going to get to my house until 11.55 p.m.? And why? Why do you have to escalate this up to your manager in order to solve my problem? Why can't you just solve my problem right here, right now? It's frustrating. And we don't like it when we experience it with other companies. Unfortunately, there's a lot of the same friction happening in the experiences that we provide others. When we're out here asking other companies why it has to be difficult for us, we need to look inside at our own companies and understand, is it difficult for our customers? Are there any points in the process where they're interacting with us where they have to ask, why is this so difficult? Why is there this friction? And that's what we're talking about today. In fact, we're talking with the guy that wrote the book on friction. It's called Friction. We're talking with Roger Dooley today. Roger's an author. He's an international keynote speaker. He is an expert in the use of the brain and behavior and how that relates to marketing, sales, and customer experience. He's written the book Brainfluence. He's the host of the Brainfluence podcast. He's a contributor to Forbes, and he's the author of the book Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So here it is. Here's my interview with Roger Dooley. Hey, Roger, how are you? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for being here. You know, um, you know, friction is really an important topic, and I don't think enough people are actually talking about it. But help me understand, you know, what, why do you say friction is important? And, you know, why now? 
Well, first of all, everybody thinks they know about friction, and it seems like too simple of a topic almost, especially like the closer you get to Silicon Valley, where people have been designing frictionless experiences and frictionless onboarding and so on. They say, oh, well, yeah, we know about that. But what I've found is, uh, you know, if everybody knows about friction, then why do we see so much of it? Uh, in our daily experience when we try and buy things online or in person, when we try and get customer service and so on. So, uh, you know, to me, a friction is unnecessary effort in any process. Uh, and that relates to simplicity complexity too, because complexity uh, adds friction, simplicity reduces friction. And, you know, just today I was working with a financial website online and uh, I could not figure out what to do. Now, I'm pretty good at figuring out websites and user experiences, and uh, you know, but I was stymied, uh, and I had to keep uh, clicking on stuff and, and experimenting to see, uh, you know, how I could get to the function that I wanted to get to. Now, if that company, which was actually a very big brand, uh, you know, monitors their customer behaviors. Uh, they will eventually notice that, you know, people seem to be clicking on a lot of stuff and not necessarily accomplishing anything. And that's true whether you're in the e-commerce business or service business or anything else. You know, there is so much wasted effort. And let me tell you why it's important, Matt. There's some amazing research from the Gartner Group, a big research company, uh, that evaluated customer service interaction. So when customers had to interact with customer service for a brand, what they found was that uh, customers who had a high effort experience uh, were about 10 times as likely to be disloyal to that brand as those who had a low effort experience. Uh, it, pretty similar numbers for repeat purchases uh, with uh, almost uh, everybody uh, repeat purchasing uh, on the low effort experience and uh, very few on the high effort experience. And the most amazing statistic was on people saying bad things about the brand. 88% of the people who had that high effort experience said that they would be likely to say bad things about the brand, say on social media or leaving reviews and such. We know how important those are compared to just 1% of low effort customers. So uh, effort really drives customer loyalty, drives customer behavior. And that is why I see friction as being so important. And that's, that's true whether you're a big brand or a little brand. You know, people's uh, impression of their effort in dealing with you is what counts. If somebody, you know, you may look at your competition and say, wow, we're a lot easier to do business with than our competitors. <laughs> but if, if that customer perceives that it's a high effort experience because what they're used to is dealing with Amazon, dealing with Uber, uh, and your experience is not as smooth as those, then they're going to say that's a high effort experience and you're going to have some of those negative effects on loyalty and other customer behavior. I don't think enough business leaders understand that customers no longer compare you to your direct competitors. They compare you to their last best experience. For a while, my wife and I were really, really loving, you know, like local pizza places. And our kids kept asking to order Domino's because we ordered local so much that Domino's was a treat to them. And after using the Domino's experience a few times, we love it. We love that experience. And I love how I can see my pizza, you know, coming down the road, so to speak. And I think to delivery companies, and I think, well, you know, if I can see my Uber car 
Or if I can see my Domino's pizza coming like, and know exactly where it is, you know, in relation to being delivered to my house, why can't I see that with my package? Well, yeah, you know, I just had an interesting experience a couple months ago. Uh, I got a little piece of electronic gear. I bought it from Amazon, but I bought it with installation. And uh, I was oh. glad I did because when I looked at the installation process myself, uh, I said, okay, well, this is not going to be straightforward. Uh, and here's the cool part, Matt. Uh, I scheduled the uh, install and then uh, maybe uh, 30 minutes before I got a text saying, okay, your installer will be on his way soon. Uh, and it provided a, a map just like the Uber does of where that service person was. So I could see where, you know, uh, when he was approaching the neighborhood, uh, when he was going to have to get through the gate and such. Uh, and, you know, uh, to me, that was such a uh, much better experience than the typical, yeah, okay, we're going to have somebody there between uh, 8 and 12. And then, you know, randomly <laughs> at some point, your doorbell rings or you hope it rings and you don't get to 12 and it's not rung. <laughs> Uh, yeah. You know, and to me, this was, they, they kept me informed throughout the process uh, when it was, you know, getting closer to being time and when he was on his way uh, and I could see where he was at. And to me, uh, you know, what, there's another kind of friction. I didn't really uh, deal with that too much explicitly in the book, but it's uh, uncertainty. When you don't know what's going on, uh, your stress levels are higher and you have to pay more attention. It takes more cognitive load because you're always checking, okay, well, hey, you know, is the person here yet? You know, you're looking out your window or something, if it's an in-person in delivery or service. And, uh, you know, when you know where that person is, you're not worried about it. Uh, I think that was the, one of the big breakthroughs that Uber had over taxis. You know, if you ever uh, planned a trip to the airport in the morning and called a taxi for 5 a.m., you know, at, at 4.45, you're thinking, okay, well, yeah, hopefully this uh, taxi is going to get here on time. It's getting closer to 5. You're starting to get a little bit antsy because, uh, you know, it's not 5 yet, but you don't, haven't seen a taxi. Right. It gets to 5.01 and immediately, uh-oh, you know, did they forget about me? You know, is uh, the person just around the corner or uh, did the driver never get the message? And, you know, by 5.05, you're really uh, freaking out. You're trying to call people and whatnot. And, and Uber eliminated that whole aspect of the experience. You could see where the person was and, you know, you knew that they were five minutes out or one minute out and you didn't worry about it. If they were running two minutes late, it didn't really matter because you could see where they were. So eliminating that uncertainty, I think is huge for any size business. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you uh, talk about Uber um, with uh, Uber Eats too. You know, like when, when they're delivering food, I love it when my Uber Eats driver just gives me a short little text. I mean, like tells me their name, says like, hi, hi Matt, I'm Joe, your Uber Eats driver, just letting you know I've picked up your food and I'm heading your way. And that makes me think, wow, okay, well, you know, it's in, it's in a human's hand now. And, yeah. and, and, the, and those I've French fries are really good, Matt. Uh <laughs> Yeah, well, there, there were a few that fell out of the bag, Matt. And, uh, I, I took care of those for you. You know what? If he's if, if he's <laughs> testing it to make sure that it's that it's safe for me, that that's fine. You know, one thing you mentioned earlier that uh, really caught me off guard. You know, you, you said eighty eight percent of customers will complain about a high effort experience, and so. I want to understand that better. Is that do do eighty eight percent of customers complain if the experience is just high effort or if it's high effort in resolving issues? Okay, that was uh, the specifics of the Garten research were uh, con customer service contacts. Typically, 
to resolve an issue of some kind, either wow. uh, they had a question, they had a return, uh, they had, you know, somehow uh, they needed help with something. So they had to call in. Typically, uh, these, I think, were calls into a call center, although they could have been initiated online too. So it could be like an, an online customer service activity, an online chat or a social media uh, initiated chat or something like that. And uh, I th- believe that the wording on the saying bad things was uh, that when queried, those customers said that they would be likely to, not, not they necessarily did say bad things, but that they would be likely to say something bad. So that, uh, and that's important because these days, you know, you, uh, everybody's looking at online reviews, they're looking at oh, Yelp, yeah. they're looking at Google reviews, they're looking at Amazon reviews, of course, for products. And you know, you don't need too many bad ones or say, oh yeah, you know, I just had a simple question and then, you know, I started off and they were, I had to talk to three different people and I was on hold for half an hour and, uh, you know, and you still encounter these really high effort experiences. You know, I think a lot of companies are, uh, you know, they think that they are being smart if they have a voice menu system that they can push people into that will handle many customer questions. And so they end up with these horribly lengthy and complicated voice menus that, you know, a person wants to talk to a human. Instead, they've got to listen to nine different choices, which of course have recently changed, as they always say, so listen to them all. Uh, And then, you know, you you pick one of those and that dumps you into another uh, menu of choices. And none of those are what you're looking for. You know, you can spend 10 minutes uh, just messing around with voice menus, going back and forth, trying to find what you're looking for, uh, and many make it really difficult to talk to a human. I mean, I've had some where I've been, you know, pushing buttons, hitting zero, yelling into the phone, yeah. agent, representative, yeah. operator. Live you know, person, live working. person. Yeah, 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 you know, nothing works. And, you know, when you have that kind of experience and then later on you get a, uh, you know, a question uh, uh, about, uh, hey, how was your experience? Uh, and this is going to go up on a, a website of some kind, review website, you know, you're going to be really primed to say something not very nice about the brand because it was not a smooth experience. You know, some of the ways you can avoid those uh, bad reviews and uh, that perception of high effort. uh, First of all, if you can answer, if the first person that the customer contacts can deal with a problem, that is ideal. Uh, If the person has to change channels where I've had uh, I was dealing with a uh, major computer company that's based here in Austin. You may have heard of Dell before. Uh, and for I've some reason, uh, yeah, they, they want to push you to a telephone contact. I greatly prefer online chats for most types of things. Not, not always, but you know, right. if I can do an online chat, I can be multitasking. I've got my computer there. I've got, you know, I can, uh, if I have to wait a few seconds for a response, I'm not just uh, sitting there. And, oh, yeah. you know, it, it works great for me, but they always push you to this, uh, uh, you know, phone thing. So, you know, you start off on Twitter, you get a response and, oh, okay, yeah, call into our 800 number. So that that is changing venues right there. And then, of course, you have the uh, thing that's common in certain kinds of uh, technical situations uh, where you've got sort of the first level support that's basically people who aren't very good that go through a checklist of things. And then if they can't figure it out, they go to the next level support and so on. Uh, and this is kind of frustrating for customers when they have to go through it because, first of all, uh, they may have already done all those things on the checklist, but they're forced to do them by that not right. very skilled representative. Then they're pushed over to somebody else who often uh, has not really been uh, filled in completely. Now, better systems will transfer all the information about the customer up to 
on that point to the new person. So they're not starting from scratch, but I've certainly dealt with companies where that second person uh, doesn't really uh, know everything about your situation. So you've got to re-explain it. Or even uh, I've had some where you have to re-authenticate. In other words, you just went through this process with the first person about providing, uh, uh, you know, your mother's middle name and, right. uh, you know, your first dog's uh, name and stuff like this. Uh, and then the second person starts asking those same questions again. It's like, look, you know, didn't I just do that for the first person who handed me off to you? And well, yeah, that's uh, for your security. No, it's not. You know, <laughs> your systems uh, should be able to handle that. But once I've authenticated myself, uh, you know, and it, it you, you, you can just go on for hours about this stuff uh, and eliminating any unnecessary effort is really the key, Matt. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and, and you say, well, it's for your security. That's not true. Um, a lot of times, especially when there's a complicated experience, it's for that company's benefit. Oh, and not absolutely. For the customer's yeah. benefit. Yeah. Well, in fact, whenever you complain about one of those processes, Matt, it's always, well, uh, this is so that we can provide the best customer care, or this is so this this is so we can protect uh, your information. Uh, and you know, you know, why do I need a password uh, that it's you know twenty three characters long and has symbols and capitals and numerals and and so on? So, oh, well, that's uh, for your protection. You know, and it, no, it's because, uh, you you know, some, yeah, some, some security person said, well, this is a best practice and it'll help us, uh, it'll prevent us from getting sued if we have a breach, uh, you know, and uh, unfortunately, uh, that's, those uh, issues are often couched as what's good for the customer when it's actually really for the benefit of the company. It really is. And you, and you bring a great point, you know, it's, it's usually some, it's usually a non-customer facing group like say info security or legal or, uh, or risk. And it appears that they try to play from a zero risk perspective instead of calculating a level of risk. Well, at what level are we okay with having, you know, a certain number of transactions, you know, uh, kind of go against this or at what level can we allow this? And a lot of times they say, well, at no level. Right. Well, you know, and often I think it's because the uh, executive at the top of the food chain there uh, does not have the confidence to make a decision. And uh, it reminds me of a a situation. Uh, I used to work with a a guy who'd been a the CFO at a pretty large regional construction company that had its own airplane. And uh, he told me that uh, he absolutely hated it when the pilot came to him and said, hey, I need this uh, piece of electronic gear. Uh, you know, it's, it's $50,000, but, uh, you know, it'll help me navigate better and, you know, it'll be safer. And, and if he pushed back on it, uh, the pilot would simply say, well, you know, uh, how do you want to compromise safety? And of course, yeah, what are you, you, you can't say, uh, sure, yeah, I don't care about safety. So he would always end up uh, having to give in because he couldn't really second guess the pilot on that. And, uh, you know, I think that many corporate decision makers are in that same mode where the chief security person or the chief legal compliance person comes to them and says, okay, we've got to put uh, this 10,000 word disclaimer in big type on, uh, you know, that webpage. I say, well, do we really have to? Because, you know, it's, it's kind of frightening for customers. Well, yeah, you know, if not, uh, we could be liable for billions of dollars in damages. And, well, okay. Uh, if you look at Amazon, 
they are a great example of a company that has made some smart security decisions. You know, I am still using the same lousy password I set up uh, probably 12 or 15 years ago. Same here. It it, it is like so ridiculously um, weak, Uh, but it, uh, you know, uh, they have never asked me to change it. Uh, They always keep me logged in. You know, these sites that log me out all the time drive me crazy. In fact, that same financial site I was uh, talking about earlier, I must have been logged out about four times uh, just in trying to get one transaction done because I jump over to another window to check on something. By the time I got back to the first window, I'd been logged out. You know, you would have to reformat your hard drive to get logged out of Amazon. And, you know, the reason that they keep you logged in is because that one-click button is always armed for you and ready to go. Uh, You know, they know that if you had to log in every time, uh, A, you probably wouldn't bother logging in every time. And if you're not logged in, then the one-click button doesn't work. You would have to go through uh, a more difficult process to order. And what they want is the simplest possible ordering process, lowest effort process, uh, and that means having that one-click button ready for you. But if you do... Uh, something a little bit higher risk, okay? You, uh, like say I decide to send you uh, an Amazon gift card um, and or I decide to send a big screen TV to somebody that I've never shipped to before. Uh, they right. will then force me to reauthenticate because these are higher risk transactions. Oh, shipping product to a new address, uh, shipping gift cards that are basically like uh, sending cash to people, those are higher risk. So they will ask me for my password or for my credit card number or, you know, some way of reauthenticating me. But for all of those low risk transactions where I'm shipping something to my normal home or business address using my normal credit card, uh, they let me do it with a single click uh, because they know that the risk of that being a fraud is minimal. But I think the challenge for a lot of companies, Matt, is that doing this uh, takes a little bit more coding effort, okay? It's much easier to build a wall around everything you're doing and say, okay, you're on the inside of that wall uh, and you can do whatever you want, or you're on the outside and you can't do anything. Uh, and, you know, to get in, you've got to authenticate. Uh, where Amazon has this uh, much more nuanced process that you're authenticated for a lot of stuff, but not for everything. And that's a big reason why they now own half of all e-commerce. And they actually gained share last year uh, in spite of everybody else trying to displace them. And other people's processes are getting better. I mean, certainly uh, most e-commerce companies are have a better process than they did a couple of years ago. Uh, but Amazon is still gaining share. It's just astonishing. To, to me, that's kind of like what they used to refer to as the Southwest Airlines effect. You know, when Southwest Airlines would go into a particular city, then all the other airlines in that city would have to kind of lower their prices or, you know, focus on their experience to match the Southwest Airlines experience. And so, you know, with Amazon, anybody else who wants to play in the e-commerce space has to follow along and has to follow what they're doing. Yeah, and you know, I think that people often underestimate uh, effort and how much effort something is, Matt. You know, uh, Amazon back in uh, 1998 patented one-click ordering. And a lot of people didn't think they could patent that. Wow. I didn't think they could. I said, I hey, that's so simple. You know, it seems, seems, it seems obvious. Yeah, 98. Uh, uh, and 
uh, Barnes and Noble, who at that point was Amazon's chief competitor because Amazon was initially right. focused on books, they said, "Oh, okay, well, we'll do one-click ordering too." Uh, and so they implemented something very much like Amazon's on their site, and they got in a big legal battle with Amazon. And Amazon spent millions of dollars to defend their patent, uh, and ultimately they prevailed. And now all they forced Barnes and Noble and their other e-commerce competitors to do was just to add one tiny click or screen touch once you're in the mobile world. Right. Uh, what Barnes & Noble had to do was uh, have their buy now button and then a confirm button after oh. that. You know, so it added just one tiny little step. But Amazon thought that tiny bit of effort was worth millions of dollars. And at the same time, there was another pretty smart person. Uh, Steve Jobs was launching <laughs> his music store at the same time. And he saw one-click ordering and Apple didn't screw around. Uh, they did not try and come up with a technical workaround. They didn't try and fight the patent in court. They just paid Amazon a million bucks so they could put it on their music store. And we know that worked out pretty well for them too. So, uh, you know, oh, yeah. uh, when when people say, oh, that's not that much effort, you know, you really have to ask them, okay, uh, you know, one click was worth millions of dollars to two really smart guys, Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs, you know, are you really smarter than them when you're saying, oh, it's only a couple of clicks, it's only a few keystrokes, you know, uh, yes, that counts. It makes a difference. It also points out that it takes effort on our side to reduce effort for our customers. And it takes investment, sometimes, sometimes significant investment to reduce effort for our customers. Right. Well, it does. And, uh, you know, the, the good thing is that often uh, it isn't that difficult. It just means looking at the process and saying, well, do we really need to do this thing and eliminating it if you don't have to. Uh, but other times, yeah, it does take coding. I, you know, I, I'm convinced that one reason why um, I often pick on United Airlines. So back when <laughs> uh, we were flying more, uh, I was uh, uh, an elite customer of theirs, uh, logging 100,000 miles a year. And, uh, you know, their website was incredibly uh, frustrating and high effort. And I think that uh, at first I thought, well, gee, they just don't have somebody there who understands user experience. Uh, but over time, I came to realize, first of all, they came up with a mobile app. It was actually quite good. Uh, they, and it kept improving. Like, you know, every time you'd boot it up, there'd be uh, an improvement that would make it, the user experience a little bit better. So I said, okay, they, they've got people who understand user experience, but instead uh, that there was some underlying legacy code issue on their website that made changes very difficult and expensive and risky because, you know, if you've got, if they've got 10 million lines of COBOL code running that thing, uh, they're probably afraid to touch it for fear of breaking the whole thing. And, you know, I think that those kinds of concerns do cause more effort. And sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and say, okay, yeah, we, we can make this better. We're going to, we're going to do it. It's going to be costly and time consuming, but at the end of the process, we are going to be in a much better place than we are today. And our customers are going to be much happier than they are today. Yes. Yes. There's a cost for doing it, but there's also an expected return for that as well. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at loyalty that we were talking about before, oh yeah, uh, that's where you get your return on investment. You know, people always ask, well, what's the return on improving customer experience? What's the ROI? Now, you know, if you, you can probably measure certain things. You can measure conversion rates. If you improve the customer experience on the initial order, you can say, okay, uh, you know, we convert 10% uh, better, 15% better when we make this easier and we've improved the UI and so on. So that's, that's great. 
you know, the longer term impact is a little bit harder to measure because you can't really A-B test uh, like, okay, we're, we're going to give these customers a suckier experience uh, and these other customers a better experience for the next two years. But we know that minimizing effort increases customer loyalty and uh, it's always cheaper to keep a customer than it is to go out and find a new one. I don't think enough people understand that. I'm going to go on a limb. I'm going to make an assumption here. I'm going to assume that most companies, most at least, don't intend to create friction. So how does friction find its way into the experience? Well, I think uh, there are many reasons, Matt. We've already talked about a few of them. Uh, You know, sometimes you just have different parts of the organization that all have input into, say, what goes on the website, what goes in the mobile app, uh, even what goes into the product itself, because you can get product friction. You know, have you ever uh, had an electronic device or something that's pretty hard to use? You know, a, a TV remote control with a million buttons that, uh, you know, it's, it's not intuitive. Uh, you know, often it's because you have different groups of people. We talked about legal people, uh, compliance people, uh, IT people. Uh, security people, you know, all of these people have input and they all have important jobs. You know, it's not to minimize the importance of what they do, right. but when you've got everybody uh, trying to get their sort of piece of turf uh, and make sure that their requirements are, are met, you end up with uh, products and services that are, are really designed by committee. You know, and you, you're compromising where the person who gets customer experience says, well, no, we don't want to do this, but uh, well, okay, we have to because... Uh, this other uh, vice president says it's really important and, you know, we have to agree with that. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's how one-way friction creeps in. Other times, it's just sort of uh, a lack of awareness because uh, I'm sure that you've got certain things that you do that uh, are really easy for you to do. But if you tried to uh, just hand that off to somebody else, it wouldn't be so simple. They wouldn't be able to figure it out on their own. And unfortunately, oftentimes our customer experiences are like that. You know, I've, I've seen uh, web designers create processes that are very simple for them because they know immediately what to do. They uh, know how to search. They know how to initiate an order. They know what to do next. But when you give that to a person who has never seen that website before, uh, they are stymied. They don't know what to do next. They click on stuff that isn't clickable. Because right. I don't know uh, it isn't clickable and it looks like maybe it should be clicked. You know, there's yeah. a, a circle or a square there and, you know, that might get me to where I want to go. Ooh, nope, you can't click it's on not. that. And there are tools to help uh, identify this stuff. There's click tracking software that will look at what people are clicking on. And ideally, people should be clicking only on the stuff that's clickable. If they're right. clicking on other stuff, uh, you are A, wasting effort and B, frustrating them. You know, so you want to make sure that what they're supposed to do is immediately obvious. You know, I, there's a great book. It's a classic now. It's really from the early days of web design. And it's Steve Krug's Don't Make Me Think. And, you know, it is as relevant today as it was when it was first written. It's out in a newer edition now, so it's been updated a little bit. But the basic principle, in fact, you know, I do encourage people to buy the book, but if you don't, oh, yeah. the title itself is enough. It's one of those books where if you just internalized the title, uh, you would be way ahead of the game. If your customers have to think about what to do next, then uh, you know you're, you aren't doing it right. You know, when you go to Amazon, Amazon has never 
apparently redesigned their website. You know, you've never said, well, hey, look, Amazon redid their website. But in fact, they are constantly testing every single element of the website. Uh, and when they find something that works better, uh, then they implement that change. So it's an evolutionary process. Uh, but many things really haven't changed. That buy button's been pretty much in the same place uh, uh, it has for, it has been uh, for, I don't know, 10 years plus because right. people know it's there. And so a designer's not going to come in and say, well, yeah, that's kind of dated looking. We're going to modernize this. We're going to make it look a little higher tech and prettier and then put it someplace else. But unfortunately, that is a way the way many websites and apps are designed. Somebody says, yeah, but, you know, this is really, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, late nineties looking or early two thousands looking. So we really need to make, bring this into uh, our current century and our current uh, decade. And they come up with a really pretty uh, design, but it's so different that people don't know what to do. And so when you make your customers think like that, you will lose your customers. I love your point about it being more of an evolution because if you, if you get to the point where you have to have a complete redesign, then you've already got a problem. But if you're evolving the site iteratively as you go along, that, that follows along with, with, the, uh, with the continuous improvement mindset. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it is, it is really a kind of a Kaizen process. Kaizen. Uh, yeah, and I, I talk about that a little bit in, in my Friction book uh, because uh, they were some of the early purveyors of this simplification. Right. The Japanese um, uh, manufacturers uh, where they were eliminating uh, uh, what they called muda, waste. And uh, uh, in, the waste. in some cases, it was, uh, you know, kind of uh, an extreme uh, thing where they showed, um, they had videos or uh, they might have been film at the time. I'm not sure they had videos uh, uh, back in those early days. Uh, but uh, of Japanese workers who were, uh, they had optimized every single aspect of that worker's movement. They would uh, put the parts at exactly the right level. Uh, if the worker had to turn halfway around to get the part, they would try and make it so that uh, that worker would only have to turn part of the way around or not have to turn at all. And uh, try and eliminate every single thing. And as a result, they were extremely efficient. Now, you know, there are limits to uh, how you can engineer human behavior like that, but that same idea can apply to uh, your customers. You know, if you can eliminate even those little movements, uh, though that little bit of wasted effort, you will get higher conversion and you will keep people happy and keep them coming back. And sometimes it seems like customers may not fully notice those improvements. They don't see it as like, oh, well, I really like this improvement, but they'll notice an experience that provide or that, that forces them into more effort. Oh, absolutely. You know, and uh, well, Amazon is the prime, sorry about that, a prime example. <laughs> uh, because, you know, nobody says, well, hey, there, there are new websites a lot better, uh, even though they have been improving it. But uh, what happens is you just perceive that it is super easy to do business with them. You know, and I'm in Texas and a few years ago, um, we had a, uh, or Amazon uh, and Amazon customers had a challenge because Amazon up to that point had not been collecting state sales tax. That's right. Uh, they worked a deal with the state of Texas where they would begin collecting, which for me as a resident 
was an immediate 8% price increase. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, you know, I said at that time, okay, well, I'm going to have to shop around more because at that point, there were still many e-commerce companies that were not charging Texas state sales tax. So I said, okay, I'm going to shop around more and, you know, it'd be stupid for me to pay that extra 8% if I didn't really have to. But when I look back a year later, my behavior had changed almost not at all. And why? Because it was so easy and effortless to do business with Amazon. I, when it, the time would come to shop around, it's like, okay, well, do, do I go hunt for this on eBay, uh, try and figure out if I can trust the seller, uh, go through their process of payment and everything else, uh, or you know, some other e-commerce company that I might even be reluctant to give my payment information to, uh, I wouldn't be sure that they'd deliver. Or if I click this one button here, I will have it on my doorstep automatically within 48 hours. And it was always easier to click that little button and uh, get that almost instant and completely predictable delivery. Uh, so, you know, for me, despite the price increase, my behavior didn't change. Now, you know, one thing that a lot of companies feel they have to do, they always have to be perfectly price competitive. In this case, uh, Amazon was not price competitive, but they still thrived even in the state of Texas. Right. It, you know, it's, it's that, uh, you know, customers will do like an internal what cost benefit analysis, you know, well, for 8%, is that worth me having to spend, you know, this amount of extra effort and time for this product? Well, not for this product, but maybe for the next one. Right. Um, and the thing is, that was, an, uh, for me at least, and I'm sure for many customers, that was mostly an unconscious decision-making process. In other words, I wasn't, oh, yeah. I, you know, I wasn't uh, really going through, well, how, how long is that going to take me? It's going to, it might take me 10 minutes. What's my time worth? It was just, Eh, click it. <laughs> right, yeah. right. You know, uh, mo most of the time, you're you're right. It is unconscious. It it is that un unconscious uh, decision. Ev every once in a while, you know, I think um, something may pop up where, where I'll, you know, maybe depending on the item or depending on the price or depending on what information I'm, I may already have, it may give me pause and say, "Wait a minute, what if I spend about five to ten more minutes looking for a better price? You know, then would I be satisfied?" Sure. And, and, you know, I, I think, um, you know, like right when the coronavirus pandemic was hitting, uh, for, for, for obvious reasons now, lots of people that were selling uh, webcam, you know, web, webcams and anything that helps with virtual meetings, they were jacking the prices up, you know, two to three times as much. And I knew the product I was looking for and I knew where to get it on Amazon. And then one day I went to go buy it and I realized that instead of $80, it was $300. That was enough for me to say, okay, wait a minute. You know, can I take five to 10 minutes and look for a better price elsewhere? But right. if, if it had been an 8% increase, no, click, click now. Right. And, you know, we trust Amazon to be competitive. And I think that the virus situation has thrown some things out of whack where right. products that were never in short supply suddenly are in short supply and either individual sellers may jack the price or algorithms may. Because, I mean, when you determine price by algorithm, if something suddenly seems to be a hot seller and is almost out of stock, then an algorithm will logically raise the price. Now, that is maybe not the best thing to do because your customers are going to perceive that you're gouging them in a time of need. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm actually uh, 
uh, written about, I've uh, got a blog at Forbes and I wrote about, uh, this is a rare moment of Amazon vulnerability because uh, what made them so attractive was their incredible reliability in delivering almost anything you needed within 48 hours. And suddenly uh, what we're seeing is now delivery on some products may be extended a week or two weeks or three weeks. uh, uh, And uh, I found myself shopping around more because of that. Uh, I've often ended up at Amazon anyway, but I have been going through that process just because, uh, you know, they are, uh, their previous reliability is now in question. I haven't fortunately had too many bad pricing experiences with them, uh, like the one that you mentioned, but I have seen uh, their uh, very predictable delivery uh, being uh, really changed dramatically. And that has caused me to shop around, do some uh, local pickup uh, options with uh, brick and mortar retailers, uh, check some smaller companies, and, and so on. So this this is a time if a company is competing with Amazon, whether they're a big company or a little company, uh, this is the time to really shine and make, show people how easy it is to do business with you. Because uh, if you can do that, maybe you'll hang on to that customer even after Amazon corrects its logistics, which I can tell you they are working very hard right now to fix their logistics issues so that they are once again back to same day, next day, and two day delivery for just about everything. Oh, they are. And, and one thing that helps, I think, with that experience is, is the messaging that they provide along with the reasons. Hey, you know, in order, to, in, in order to ensure that we're getting essential items, you know, uh, more priority, here's why this non-essential item you know, may be delivered, you know, in two or three weeks instead of two days. And that, that provides a trigger or a signal in somebody's brain that says, oh, okay, well, that's why. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, just about providing that proactive notification. If you can provide information up front, then that does give customers, you know, a, a, a bit more sense of security or, or a better feeling about their experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, just keeping somebody apprised of progress is really helpful. Yeah. We've talked about um, a lot about the e-commerce experience and, you know, uh, like actual steps and effort that people take with that, with actions in the customer experience. But I want to talk about language. I'm, I'm curious how, how language and messaging can help reduce friction in the customer experience. Well, there is a kind of friction that I call cognitive friction and that is how difficult something is for your customer's brain to process. And uh, this, this is really uh, interesting because the same exact um, uh, effort in re- real terms, real effort, may seem like a lot more if it is difficult for the customer's brain to process that. And that can uh, really happen in a couple of ways. It can happen in the way, in the language that something is expressed in, something that is, is expressed in more complicated language, uh, more legalese, more right. uh, technical terms, and so on. Uh, that makes it seem more difficult. And even, uh, now this is what's really crazy, even the font, the typeface that is used uh, can make it seem more difficult. Oh, there's, yeah. a great, there's a great experiment uh, done at the University of Minnesota where uh, they asked people how long it would take to do a simple exercise. 
uh, just uh, like two little instructions about putting your chin down to your chest, lifting your head up and so on. Very, very simple thing. Two short sentences. Half of the people saw it, uh, saw the instruction in a very simple Arial sans serif font. So a very easy to yeah. read font. And the other half saw it in a brushy font, which is perfectly legible, but just a little bit harder to read. Uh, and what they found was the people who saw it in the aerial font said it would take about eight minutes to do the exercise. The people who saw it in the brushy font said it would take 15 minutes to do the same exercise, which is crazy. Uh, the exact same words, same size type, everything, but uh, it seemed more difficult. The difficulty in processing that information, that cognitive friction, uh, made the action itself seem more difficult. So if you are asking your customers to do something then you want to be sure that you are using the simplest type font, the simplest wording, yes. uh, you know, an easy to read design. Uh, I don't know if uh, uh, you've ever noticed uh, there some, some places Wired Magazine comes to mind as uh, at times they've had uh, designers who will put a white type on a busy uh, colored background of, with fine detail. You can't read it. I've, oh, I've seen yes. stuff at Wired Magazine. That what am I trying to read? Yeah, you've got to I'll put the uh, put the page at an angle that catches the light so you can <laughs> read it. It's like a silver reflective font or something. And, uh, and you know, uh, that's maybe fine for them because they are doing, their design is part of their shtick. And, uh, you know, but if you want your customers to do something, you want to make it as simple for their brains to process as possible. Uh, so you want to have very clear design. Uh, in fact, there, there was another experiment done by Adam Alter, uh, oh, yeah. a, a professor, psychologist uh, who wrote Drunk Tank Pink, another, another right. fun book about uh, sort of non-conscious cues that change behavior. And uh, they found, uh, they had sort of an unwitting A-B test where there was a confession site where people go to uh, talk about the horrible things they did to other people anonymously. So, you know, if you if you did something to uh, one of your coworkers or classmates or a relative, uh, you can go and confess it there and make yourself feel better without uh, actually telling everybody that you did it. Uh, and it's good for the soul. Went, well, yeah, the site went from a relatively difficult to redesign where it was sort of gray type on a black background to a much easier to process uh, design, which was black type and a white background, sort of like what you'd see yeah. in, a, in a book. And what they found was that people were more willing to give up um, much more detailed uh, and revealing confessions after that design change. So wow. the ease in processing their cause them to be more forthcoming. So again, it's, it's just sort of looking at that same issue another way, but you want to keep your design easy to read, uh, easy font, uh, simple text, and that will uh, maximize the chance of customer action. And I hear from so many people, so many marketers or communicators that say, well, I want my message to stand out. And in order for my message to stand out, it has to look different. And it has to look a bit more, you know, and, and it has to look not simple. And I try to tell them, no, the, the, the best way is a simple type treatment, a simple font. But y'all, this isn't just me saying this. This is Roger Dooley saying this. Right. Well, it is uh, true. And the, the answer to that often is, well, let's run an A-B test. If it's, if it's a venue where you can do that, if it's online or something like that, you know, if it's uh, a print brochure, not so easy to do an A-B test, but if it's... Uh, a website or a mobile app. Testing is so simple. And I think that in general, there's, a, there's an important message there, Matt, because 
you know, you can read uh, all kinds of advice based on uh, experience, based on psychology. Uh, in my initial Brainfluence book, my first book, uh, had a hundred different ways you can use uh, our understanding of neuroscience and human behavior to market better. But those should not be considered uh, absolute gospel, uh, none of them, because your situation may not be the same as whatever situation uh, was, uh, whatever the situation was when the test was conducted, right. maybe different people, uh, might be a different company if it was a commercial test, different product and so on. And uh, if you talk to conversion optimizers and people who work with many brands and do hundreds of tests per year, uh, they will tell you that uh, often they could predict what will work best. You know, they can say, okay, uh, your font is too complicated. You need to simplify that so it's easier to read, or you need to add some social proof here. You know, if, if you want people to buy your software, you've got to tell them that you've got 200,000 other customers who bought your software and so on. And, uh, you know, 90% of the time they'll be right, but one time out of 10, they will find that, oh, hey, hmm, didn't work this time. You know, they can guess at why, you know, but uh, it doesn't really matter. So it's important that even if you are making what you think is a really smart, well-informed decision, testing that is always still the best idea. Oh yeah. Testing and learning. We hear people talking about companies wanting to be more customer centric. And a lot of these companies that are providing simpler and frictionless experiences, like really are focusing on the customer. So I'm, I'm curious, is it possible for companies to be customer, customer centric, remove friction from their customer experience, but still turn a blind eye to friction inside their company? Well, that's, that's a great point, Matt. And I think that uh, the, uh, the answer is uh, yes, occasionally, but uh, that is not the best way to go. And, you know, I've been holding Amazon up as an example of uh, a company that, uh, you know, does so many things right. But uh, one thing that they have not uh, excelled in is their employee experience. Uh, they have, oh, wow. um, uh, you know, and, and I, I, want to say that their employee experience, at least according to rankings, I looked at some rankings at uh, Indeed, the uh, job website where they have right. uh, thousands of responses from actual employees. So they can sort of gauge what these employees think about their employer. Uh, Amazon is above average. Okay. It's not like they have a terrible experience. They, they do uh, uh, you know, significantly better than average companies on their employee experience. But what we've seen uh, with the pressures of the um, pandemic is the employee experience kind of fraying at the edges uh, where uh, we've had these uh, sporadic uh, calls for walkouts. We've had uh, a lot of employees expressing concerns about their safety and so on. And, uh, you know, there you can see that even though they've been really good at providing a, a great customer experience, they did not have an equal level of focus on their employee experience. Now, now, you know, not that it was all that bad, but their employees are not necessarily as engaged or part of that. Uh, they don't necessarily see themselves as part of the brand uh, identity as much. And I contrast that with a supermarket uh, company that we have here in Texas called HEB. Uh, and most people have not heard of them unless they're from Texas. If they're from Texas, they will say, oh, I love my HEB. Uh, oh, yeah. I've heard that countless times. 
uh, because this store provides really an awesome customer experience. Uh, and I've written about that at Forbes. And they do a lot of smart uh, things that are either based on psychology or their intuition led them in a direction that really comported well with uh, consumer psychology. Uh, but they also uh, really focus on their employee experience and making their employees part of the brand identity. And yes. one way they do that is by uh, building on their Texas identity. They consider themselves to be a Texas brand, a Texas company. So when this uh, pandemic hit, uh, their slogan became Texans helping Texans. Uh, they immediately uh, gave their uh, people a raise that were working in the warehouses and uh, uh, frontline delivery people and such uh, in their stores uh, and said, okay, uh, you know, we realize this is going to be a difficult time for you. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think uh, multiple companies did this. I think maybe Amazon called it hero pay or something. Well, uh, HEB called it uh, uh, Texas pride pay. So Ooh. they were reinforcing this. Uh, we are all in this together. You know, we are part of the same Texas identity and this pervades their customer marketing. I mean, every aspect, everything you see in the store, uh, is somehow Texas branded. Uh, it's, you know, this pervades everything they do. This is the brand, uh, and HEB, uh, their indeed rankings are off the chart. Uh, they are, among the top companies in any category, not just the supermarket category, but in any category uh, for uh, their uh, employee connection, what employees think of their the job their CEO is doing, uh, and other metrics like that. Uh, you know, and when when the pandemic hit, uh, you know, you saw this these rumblings at Amazon about uh, hey they're they're putting us in danger. You right. had Amazon office employees. Uh, going into the warehouses and stores, working checkouts, uh, working the warehouse to be sure they could keep their supply chain flowing and take care of their customers. And, you know, to me, uh, that is the kind of employee engagement that you want. You, um, you mean you mean you had HEB corporate office employees? Yes, doing yes, that? exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if that happened at Amazon. I have not heard about that happening uh, but, uh, uh, you know, if you it had, did, they, they you, haven't talked about it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you had these HEB people who are potentially putting themselves, if, if I were in the HEB office, I would feel safer at the office than of working the checkout line. Uh, you know, but uh, they uh, just jumped right in and said, okay, we're going to do it. So, you know, to me, that if, if you can produce that kind of employee engagement, uh, then you're doing the right thing. And it's going to show to your customers too. You know, your, your customers can perceive that level of engagement when uh, every time they interact with an employee, they, you know, they'll just sense that, okay, uh, you know, we're all together here and, you know, the employee cares about me. Uh, they care about me as a person. They care about the brand and, you know, it's, it's a much better experience. You know, I, I preach often on empathy being a really key behavior for brands. And to me, that's a fantastic example of, of empathy that sh that showcases itself not only to the Texas community, but to their employees as well. It's an empathetic statement, an empathetic action that speaks volumes across, you know, across all HEB's levels. Well, yeah. And, you know, empathy really takes you in different directions. Uh, one of Amazon's innovations uh, was frustration-free packaging. They saw 
uh, that their customers were struggling with some of these uh, plastic blister heat sealed packages right. uh, that you know were great for retail because you, they prevented shoplifting, I guess, and they, they displayed the product through nice clear plastic. Uh, but they were a real bear to get open, even in your home. You know, you'd have to use sharp instruments, scissors, or knives. You know, you risk uh, stabbing yourself, if not with the sharp implement, uh, than with the packaging itself. You know, and they're terrible for the environment. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was I think oh, so they came out with frustration-free packaging, uh, simple cardboard boxes. You can open with your bare hands. Uh, they're not dangerous at all. Uh, they're good for the environment, or at least better than plastic for sure. And, uh, you know, people like them. People not only like the packaging, uh, there was a 73% reduction in negative feedback about the products themselves that were packaged that way. And uh, you know, so people like the products themselves better uh, because they somehow perceived it was a better experience. They didn't have to struggle. And uh, now I've noticed on some products, at least, you know how Amazon has all those filter criteria where you can uh, uh, narrow a search by different uh, Fields like the price range or oh, yeah, yeah. You know, brands or colors and such. One of their criteria is frustration-free packaging. So wow. and you could be sure this is something that they tested and they found that people would actually check that box. People wanted to be able to select for frustration-free packaging because they hated that uh, other kind of packaging. And, you know, you would think that other brands would immediately take a lesson from this and say, okay, well, hmm. We've been doing it wrong all along, but it was it was funny. I was on uh, a Home Depot the other day looking at a product that I purchased, and I was reading a few customer reviews. And one of the customer comments was, uh, "It was a, a hose type product." He said, it "Took me thirty minutes to get the hose out of its packaging," and I can see why because it was a large uh, plastic blister pack, and it was I oh recall it had been difficult for me to get into. But I mean, you know. Why wouldn't you fix that? You know, if you have feedback like this, if you have the evidence from looking at Amazon, why wouldn't you fix it? And I think it's because brands, they just aren't paying attention. They're asleep at the switch. Well, and in, in that case, it, it could have been legal or loss prevention that said, well, in order to make sure that there's no theft or uh, no theft of this, we have to package it this way. Yeah, that's quite possible. And it was easier just to say yes and to say, okay, well, is there another way that we can avoid uh, most of our legal liability, but make it easier for our customers uh, instead? You know, but they didn't take it to that next level. Right. It doesn't have to be a zero risk game. Oh. Well, you know, so Roger, um, we, we've talked a lot about Amazon and, you know, um, well, because they've created some of the simplest experiences we have today. And I like to help leaders understand that they can create an Amazon experience without having to have an Amazon budget. So what can smaller businesses do to eliminate friction? Well, you know, I think that there, there are so many things that they can do. Uh, if it's a shopping experience, just you know, watching customers go through the shopping experience, uh, both visually, just you know, give, give, uh, give your mother uh, an instruction, hey, uh, mom, buy something on my website uh, uh, and, you know, see how she copes with it, assuming that she right. has not already bought stuff on the website. Uh, you know, it's, it's a really simple, uh, very cheap thing to do. Uh, or you can use digital tools. There are so many tools for tracking customer behavior. You know, you can see how far people are scrolling. You can see how long they're on a certain page or in a certain stage of the process. You can see how far they get uh, in your shopping cart checkout process before they bail on you. You know, I mean, there's so many... Uh, instruments that you can put on that 
will help you understand where your customers are getting stuck and where that friction is happening. So, you know, to me, uh, just starting with observation, but then moving into the digital realm of trying to uh, use tools that help you uh, spot where these elements of friction are. Uh, And even in the product itself, you know, I mean, to me, that's a a huge area of advantage. Uh, One of the examples in my book was uh, from a guy who had been part of a uh, wireless networking company. It was, it was a very smart guy, an inventor type guy uh, who ended up outside that company uh, because of apparently internal politics and basically had to start from scratch. Okay. So here he was chucked out of uh, this company that ended up going on to uh, be very successful and actually create a billionaire uh, uh, out of uh, its uh, remaining owner. And uh, so he took on something that seemed like a crazy uh, task. He said, okay, I'm going to create a wireless router for the home. Now, the players in wireless routers for the home at that point were people like Cisco, right. uh, Netgear, you know, huge uh, multi-billion dollar brands with, you know, giant technical staffs and in support infrastructure and everything else. And it, it seemed like an insane thing to do to take on these companies. But he had a an idea. If he looked at what the other routers looked like at the time, and they were black boxes with blinking lights uh, and a bunch of connections on the back. And he said, okay, you know, the average consumer uh, really has difficulty setting these things up when they get at home. Uh, you know, they don't quite know what to do. And he was thinking even his techie friends, once they had their home router configured, hated to touch it because they knew that if they screwed something up, they'd spend an hour trying to troubleshoot it and get it back to where it was supposed to be. Oh, and yeah. So it looks scary. What, you know, what if uh, we figured out how to simplify this process? And what he saw was that touch screens, little color touch screens were getting really cheap because they were being used in really cheap mobile phones. And he said, what, what if instead of just this black plastic box with blinking lights, we put a little touch screen on there uh, that would let you tap a few things and it would pretty much auto configure itself. And uh, that's what he did. And people said, well, you know, initially we were pretty skeptical. Why would you put a touch screen on a router? You know, you don't need a touch screen on a router. You know, we've got these great web interfaces that you can do everything from a computer uh, to set up his router. You did not have to connect a computer to it. You didn't have to type some weird IP address into your browser. Uh, you didn't have to connect an ethernet cable. Uh, you could configure it through that little touch screen. And it really added very little cost to the router itself, but it enabled people to set up a router in what uh, their branding was three minute setup. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it had two effects. First of all, it began selling a lot of routers because people liked the idea of a three minute setup. And also their reviews confirmed it. Most of the routers at the time uh, didn't have great reviews. You know, I, I'm sure you shop on Amazon a lot, Matt. And right. uh, I, I usually look at stuff for with reviews that are well into the fours. If it's, if it's below four, I figure, okay, that's probably something sketchy about that product. And a lot of those routers for big brands were decent products that were good quality, but they had ratings uh, that were below four, maybe in the 3.5 range, because people had difficulty configuring them. And you, you, you read the reviews, say, and it got one star because, yeah, I tried to work on this set of, for two hours to set it up. Finally, I sent it back. Uh, and uh, he began getting all these five-star reviews. Uh, where people said, yeah, it really worked. I set it up very quickly. It was easy. And uh, that 
turned into a virtuous cycle where the good reviews would create better exposure for him in Amazon. He'd sell more. And he ended up selling, I don't know, a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand routers in just a year or two, despite the fact that he was competing with these industry giants. So it was the process of making things easier and seeing a way to do that that the other people weren't doing that enabled him to get this great competitive advantage when it would appear that uh, he would have been doomed from the start. In that product category, in that industry, you know, wireless routers, I, I, I would say that not many people really expect something to be that simple or expect there to be, you know, really high reviews on that. So if somebody can create something that is simple and create something that really generates five-star reviews, that's an opportunity to just really, really stand out from the crowd in that industry. And I'm thinking of other, you know, friction centric industries where there's opportunities like that. And I don't know, like what, what, what are some of the highest friction industries you think? Well, unfortunately they're pretty hard to get into. I think that uh, yeah, uh, cable TV providers uh, and uh, internet service providers uh, are the highest friction categories out there. And the reason they have so much friction is because they tend to be monopolies. And frankly, they don't care that much uh, if they provide terrible customer experience, because you really don't have many options, uh, you know, and it's it's very frustrating. But they traditionally rank at the bottom of industries for That's customer true. experience ratings. And, you know, if you look at it, they, you never see them asking for their net promoter score because they don't. They know you're not going to recommend them to other people. You, right. you use them because they're the only ones in your neighborhood. Right. And uh, you know, so you know, to me. Uh, more and more businesses are getting the message that they do have to focus on getting the friction out of their customer experience. Uh, and even, even those companies eventually are going to realize uh, that they have to do it too. Maybe 5G will be the uh, incentive when suddenly people can bypass them completely. I don't know. But, uh, you know, we've seen it happening in the wireless uh, industry, the, where traditionally cell phone companies are kind of like that because they had people locked into long-term contracts and there were only a few providers. But as we've had other people come in with more flexible plans and uh, different approaches to it, um, it's, it's gotten a lot better. Uh, I, you know, Google Fi, I've been using for a couple of years, and they simplified the process so much by doing it as a, as a pay-as-you-go, uh, yeah. pretty much uniform pricing globally. You know, uh, with uh, haven't been traveling much in the last couple of months, of course, but, uh, uh, you know, I've been in dozens of countries around the world for either business or uh, for uh, vacations, and I just fire up my phone, and it works, and it's the same exact price as it is in the U.S. So to me, uh, that is a much lower friction experience than uh, previously when I had to uh, sign up for an international plan or do roaming or have very limited ability of, of bandwidth, availability of bandwidth. And you know, all, all these things that were so difficult and Google pretty much simplified it. They said, okay, one price worldwide, you know, that's all. And, and the story, you know, and that immediately uh, made my travel much easier uh, than it had been. I mean, I used to shop around for uh, SIM cards uh, when oh I got to goodness. a new location uh, because, uh, you know, the, uh, um, uh, my current plan wouldn't, wouldn't operate there or it was crazy expensive uh, where, you know, for a you know, small amount of money, you know, 10 or 20 bucks, so you could uh, get up and running with a local SIM card. But the last thing you want to do when you arrive at some new destination, you know, after being on planes for 15 hours and you're jet lagged is start shopping around for SIM cards. No, no, that's, that, that's too much, that's too much effort already. 
but especially too much effort like once you're jet lagged and tired. Yep, that, absolutely. And you know, now when I end up in a country, I, there's I see a little text message from uh, Google and Google Fi. You know, you're in Thailand, you're yeah, in welcome. Austria. We got you covered. Uh, and bingo, that's it. And again, that that goes right back to where we started. You know, talking about having that proactive communication that gives you that sense of security and that sense of ease. Right. Exactly. Well, Roger, I have really enjoyed spending time with you today. This has been fascinating and I've loved all these stories, but where can people go to find out more from you? Well, the best jumping off point is rogerdooley.com. And there I've got information about my uh, books, my speaking, my workshops, uh, which uh, these days are virtual, not uh, in person, but hopefully someday we'll get back to uh, in-person keynotes and in-person workshops. Someday. Uh, and uh, also to my blog content uh, at Forbes, my neuromarketing blog, all that stuff is linked from rogerdooley.com. People want to connect on social media. The uh, best places are Twitter, where I'm at Roger Dooley, uh, also on Instagram, and at LinkedIn, where I can be found by typing in Roger Dooley. There you go. Wow. So many places to connect with and to learn from Roger on how to remove friction from your businesses. Roger, I'm really grateful for your time today. I thank you very much. Hey, it's been a blast, Matt. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Roger Dooley as much as I did. And if you're anything like me, you're probably able to recognize friction when you experience it now in any of your experiences. But what I want you to really do is dig deep into the experience that you're providing others. Where are customers experiencing friction with the experience you provide? And what are the steps you can take to remove that friction and make it frictionless? Well, there's so much more to learn from Roger. So go and check out all that he has to offer. You can visit him at rogerdooley.com. But again, listen, you know, you're listening to a podcast right now on a podcast player. Go into your podcast player and search for the Brain Fluence Podcast. That's where you can find Roger every single week talking to other business thought leaders and business authors about friction and how to remove friction to make simpler experiences. Hey, I hope you're enjoying listening to the Simple Brand Podcast. I love having you with us today. Um, I'd love it if you hit the subscribe button. And when you do, that's going to be a lot simpler for you to get future episodes. We've got some great episodes coming up. Lots of more great interviews. Lots of fun guests. More lessons from me, Matt Lyles. So hit the subscribe button, and then you can automatically make sure that you get those new episodes as soon as they're live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.